Uh, tell you what, it's, it's an honor to be with y'all today. Um, amazing, amazing time to be here. All right, so turn with me in your Bibles. Well, turn on your Bibles. I know this generation, right? <laughs> so John 17. I love John 17 because it's, it's Jesus praying, right? Jesus praying. <clears throat> and uh, when I was when I was growing up, I remember six, being six, seven years old and uh, being a mess. <laughs> Messing up with my mother. I remember seven years old, around about that time, I, I did something. I don't know what exactly what I did, but I did it again, right? <laughs> and so instead of getting the spanking, my mother said, uh, come here, you, you, you get right here. I'm going to pray. Oh, oh. You ever heard your parents praying for you? Right? Well, when I was growing up, that was, that was, this was like, yeah, it was, it was a great prayer, but it was a, it was a time of intense prayer. She let me understand basically what was most important to her at the moment <laughs> and what, what I was doing, how it affected her. And so she's praying. She's like, now, Lord, he's seven years old, but if you wanted to make eight, that's totally up to you. I've had a longer relationship with you than I have with him. I haven't known him that long. I'm thinking, I gotta start praying. Well, later on in your life, you walk in and there's nothing, the greatest buzz kid in the world is walking in and hearing your mama praying for you. Well, she, she's walking up on praying. You just came back from the club and all of a sudden you, you're tipping in, on, you know, sneaking in. You're all you hear her praying for you. No. Ah. Right? This is Jesus praying for us. Come on. earshot of what he's praying. And this is what the Lord wants us all to hear. The one thing that's most concerning him, the one thing that's on his heart, then and now. John 17, starting verse 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And he says this, do not ask on behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now he's praying for you. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's praying for you. What's he praying? That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be reflected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that powerful? And there's another scripture. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is talking about the great heroes of faith, right? Go to Hebrews 11 and go to uh, verse. 36. It says some amazing things about these folks. It goes by faith. By faith this, by faith that, and then it gets to this part here. And others experienced mocking and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about the sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, God will start something in one generation 
and complete it exponentially in future generations. And it starts in the place of prayer. Come on, Lord. All of us in this room today because somebody prayed. I know a week ago, maybe two days ago, in this church, people were praying for you. I know years ago, my family, my mother was praying for me. <laughs> Hundreds of years ago, the people who found it, Philadelphia, they were praying for me. William Penn was praying for me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had you on his mind. I want to talk to you about the power of prayer and prophets. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we just thank you. Thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for what you're doing in all of our lives right now. Thank you that you're the God of problems and you don't forget anything. You, just, you love to remember. You watch over cities because when you see those cities, you remember your friends. And you're connected to the memories of the people who devoted themselves to you. You go after their offspring like it's nobody's business. So God, we thank you for being recipients of that great that grace. But also we thank you for being the answers to their prayers. But also we thank you for being the question. Will we move the chain forward? Help us to respond rightly in this hour, this crisis that we're in, not just in a nation, but in our own personal lives, in our own personal families, so that generations even yet to be created can praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. So you see that little graphic up there. Some of you may be wondering what that is. Uh, that is this 200-year-old kettle pot. It's been in my family. <laughs> It's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. It was used by the slaves in my family. They use it for cooking. They use it for washing clothes. But they also use it for, 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 for another reason. It's basically been this memorial stone that my family passed down. So Joshua chapter 4 actually talks about memorial stones. Uh, just you know, for reference, Joshua 4, 4, and then also at the end of Joshua, Joshua uh, 4, 19, and all the way to the end. He mentions this particular part of that passage several times. It's not like it's in another book of the Bible or <clears throat> reference somewhere else. All these references to the memorial stones are right there like three times and this phrase is, is, is said there over and over again. Cross again the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of Jordan and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Then he says let this be a sign among you. So when your children ask later on saying what do these stones mean for you? You should say to them, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. Wow. For the same God that part of the Red Sea is the same God that part of the Jordan River, and it'll part whatever circumstance for you. That's what that pot in my family is. It's a memorial stone. So what was happening at that time period? Basically, there's this whole generation that grew up, and they didn't, they didn't know. <clears throat> they heard the stories, but they didn't know the same things or, or see the same things that the previous generation saw, especially with the Red Sea part. They grew up in the wilderness for 40 years. The previous generation dies off. And they're about to move into the land of promise. That particular generation, the other, there were two people who did see that Red Sea part, Joshua and Caleb. But the rest of that young generation, they grew up with clothes that never wore out wow. for 40 years. And it does. Shoes that never wore out. They had little kicky white stuff they ate every day. They didn't know what slavery was like. In other words, they were basically the recipients of somebody else's sacrifice. Who is willing to trust God and leave everything so they can have freedom. So as they get ready to go into Jericho, they get to this place called the Jordan. And when they get there, the Lord says, you know what, I'm a... It's like the Lord said, you know, I should have had a V8. Y'all remember that old commercial? I just dated myself. I know millennials are like, what are you talking about? So a V8 commercial from back in the day. But uh, it's just, there's going to be a generation there that had seen the Red Sea part of or the Jordan River part, river part of this going to come after them. I'll send a message to these folks at Jericho at the same time. But what we'll do is grab stones out of the middle of the Jordan River. So not, not little rocks. These things were huge boulders. So they had to pile them up on either side of the Jordan. In the middle of the Jordan even. And on the other side. And so when the next generation saw them, they would be perplexed by these huge stones that were piled up. And it was this sign to them. To say, listen, we didn't get these out of the Jordan River by, uh, you know, we didn't have scuba gear, wasn't invented yet, <laughs> weren't good swimmers. No, God parted the Jordan River the same way he parted the Red Sea at flood season. Yeah. Wow. Right? 
And the same God that part of the Jordan River and the, the same God that part of the Red Sea, they'll part whatever circumstance for you. That's what that pot means for us and our family. The same God that part of slavery will part whatever circumstance. So he's the God of providence. He watches over all these things because of prayer. And that's what activates providence. Matter of fact, that pot comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. Wow. I don't think that's a mistake either. What you're going to hear today is a bunch of uncoincidental coincidences. <laughs> and how God is just weaving this amazing thing together in all of our lives. I love how Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary uh, describes providence. It says, providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things in a paradox. <laughs> in other words, you have no idea how many things God prevented from happening for you to get here. You have no idea how the accidents that happen in your life have actually set you up to be in this room right now. We are the recipients of promise. He watches over it at all. He watches over it all. And so you're going to hear that in this story. Uh, I like the, the New Testament understanding of, of providence. It's, it's that scripture in Ephesians 2 and 10 where it says that uh, we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. Where he, where he, we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That word workmanship is a powerful word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. Poema. You're the word poem in it, right? Yeah. That's where it comes from. So think about it. You're God's poem. Amen. You're his song. <laughs> but even greater than that, the word poema was the word that was used to describe a skillful tailor, a fabric maker, a weaver. In other words, God has a tailor-made plan. Taylor made destiny for all of our lives. Every now and then he has to take that needle and stick us in you know what so we can get going in the right direction. But he's weaving this whole thing together, this beautiful tapestry. And like most tapestries on one side of it, it just looks like a knotted mess, right? And every now and then, the poem, the fabric maker, the tailor says, oh, no, 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 this is what I'm working on. Now turn it around so you can see what they're working on. Where that? place right now where God is turning this tapestry around just a little bit so we can get the people what he's working on with healing the racial divide in this nation and bringing revival to our country again. I see this happen in my own life so <clears throat> the only way now how to get started is just to tell you my story so I remember it was in the 2000 August of 2000 I got to this place where I I just got hungry for revival. I read this book by a guy named Bill Bright. And in that book, he said, God, give me two million people who go to a 40-day fast for revival in America. I said, God, give me an answer to that man's prayer. The first extended fast that I ever did. And uh, first day of my fast, somebody spray painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, start prayer walking your neighborhood. I mean, you prayer walk your office place or your workplace or your school or whatever, prayer walk it. Man, if you don't start doing it, because everywhere the soul of your foot tread, then God, he's giving it to me. Right? I started prayer walking my neighborhood. Man, I started meeting people of other, other religions and sharing the gospel with them. So I see people get saved in my neighborhood. I pray for people who were sick, saw God heal them. But even greater than that, God broke my heart for revival in all of America. And I would just walk and weep and pray for revival. I started studying about the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the Zeus Street revival. And I'd get up in the morning, go up, or get up and go early in the morning and late at night because I would weep and quiet so hard and pray for revival during that time period. God bless this one little neighbor, little nosy, lady, no, nosy uh, neighbor that I had. Remember Gladys Kravitz? Yeah, from that show the wish, whatever, the little nosy neighbor. That's why I had one of those in my neighborhood. <laughs> and she'd be looking out the window at me, walking around the streets on the phone. There he go again. <laughs> I don't know what his wife is doing to him. Yeah, he crying again. <laughs> we praying for him. She had no idea. Praying for her, praying for the nation. God was breaking my heart. But little did I know, as I was praying walking my neighborhood, God was preparing me for what I'd be doing for the next 25 years. Prayer walking the world? Prayer walking the yeah. So, don't get ahead of me. All right. <laughs> so, go to this little conference in Washington, D.C. There's a prayer gathering called The Call. I didn't know a soul there. I break my fast after The Call. That's what I broke my fast. And uh, 400,000 young people were there to fast and pray for revival in America. And I thought, God, I finally met my tribe. And then, uh, 
I saw that some of those leaders about four or four months later were going to be in Colorado Springs to do a prayer meeting. I thought, oh, this would be great. I thought, this prayer meeting. But look, I know, I didn't know Mr. Polano was connecting me to some unfinished business. I even had to do with that catalog. So I get to uh, the conference, and uh, there's this little lady there named Cindy Jacobs. Me or her, right? Little prophet lady. <laughs> I didn't know her at the time. And uh, she calls up a guy named Dutch Sheets. Me or her, some of y'all heard of him. Yeah. Yep. A good friend of mine now. Didn't know him then. Calls up another young man named Billy Austin. And Cindy uh, begins to pray and prophesy over both of them. And she begins to say that God's going to use you to go to Williamsburg, Virginia to pray and contend for revival in all of America. And it's really key that you do this. And then she stops and she says, hold on, there's something to this because Dutch, his real name is William. Of course, Billy, his real name is William. And here we are talking about them going to Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? So it's about 500 folks there. I'm in the back. And I just kind of blurted out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. She said, that's right. You're with me too. Yeah. She said, who said that? And I was like, oh. I just, in the back, I just kind of poked my hand up. Again, I'm not traveling and speaking at the time as a speaker. I'm just an intersection in the business. She said, who said that? She said, you, in the back, come up here. She said, it's too hard up here anyway. Come on down. So I started laughing, but when the three of us get connected together, William the Chiefs, William the Helios, and William for the third, the Spirit of God falls on all three of us. And Dust looks at me with tears in his eyes and says, I believe if we do this prayer gathering, you have to come with us. I'm thinking, okay, this will be like church camp. We'll exchange phone numbers and never hear from each other again. Right? I was setting the heart up for that. But Mr. Poem said, we have something together. So Dutch shared this powerful message for the first time, I'm sure like five minutes of it with you in just a moment about synergy and about connecting not just us today, but also the synergy and the generation is joining together and the age is joining together. And it's a powerful, powerful message. And I, it reminded me of the pot and how it was used. And I shared it with the Dutch. It's like, oh my God, it would be amazing if we did this. And he said, you know, we've been praying about it. He contacted me after the gathering is over. He said, uh, you know, we've been praying about this and not only do we want to go to you know, uh, Williamsburg and Jamestown, the original settlements, want to go to New England and the Northeast and Philadelphia and other places and contend for revival. When the nation was founded, he said, uh, he said, I'll sing y'all the names of the cities we want to go to. And so, that's, you know, when it starts to get weird, because when Dutch sent me all the names of the cities they wanted to go to, all of them, except for two, were names of streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. Oh, and he didn't know that. For example, went to Jamestown, the original settlement. Jamestown Court was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University. Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire. Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University. Dartmouth Court was four streets down. Went to New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. Literally, I could go on. And if I had the... the, the, the the, the, the cities represented, I had the literal regions represented. For example, went to, to the Chesapeake Bay area, and uh, they used to call that whole area the Chesapeake. And at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. <laughs> now, why would I do that with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Well, it turns out that the Dutch, remember, in 1619, 400 years ago this year, they were the first ones to send slave ships into America. And William III, that king from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying, I want to use your relationship to show. I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. I'm turning the attack of the rest to see a little bit of what I'm working on. It's Acts 17, 26 and 27, where God said, I made from one blood many nations and determine the bounds of our habitations. Time beforehand, that we all may seek after God and find them, though it be not far from every one of us. In other words, God has determined the color of your skin, the family you're going to be born in, the neighborhood you're going to live in, so we can all grope after him together, so we can find him together. I love the old language I said, we grope after him. The old folks, we know what it is to grow, right? <laughs> to find after something, right? Uh, back when I was growing up, old country house where my, my grandmother had, they didn't have the light switch on the wall. Where was the light switch on? Where was, where was the old, old, old folks? Where was the light switch? 
It was in the middle of the room. It was on a string. Right? But if somebody turned the light off and walked out the room because it's bright on the other side, nighttime, you couldn't turn that light on. So you couldn't hit the switch on the wall, so you had to walk into that room and do kind of like this. Right. <laughs> you're walking in that room like this, and like, where is that thing at? You're like, uh, you don't want to go too fast. Because if you hit it, then you hit it. Oh, that's it. And you have to wait for the stream to come back again. And then you turn the light on. <laughs> and it was like kind of crazy why you're doing it, right? Somebody looking on the outside, like, what world is going on with them? Then the light comes on. Like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's what we look, right, look like right now in America. When everybody's we're trying to find this switch. Now, where is the switch in Philadelphia? Where is the switch in Britain? Where is that light switch for people? Pennsylvania, where is the light? You know, it looks kind of crazy, but one day, the light's coming on, y'all. Awakening's gonna hit. We're on the tip of the iceberg, it's something huge. You know what? We can find that string a whole lot better if we link arms together. Come on, Will. We're in that place. The thing that connected Dutch and I was this little teaching that he had. On synergy. Synergy is when you take two separate things and you connect them together. You don't create an additional power on the multiplicity of power, right? Scientists say if you take two horses and put them together, but they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Spiritually, we know that one could put a thousand to flight, two could put what? Ten thousand to flight. That's synergy. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and right. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between male, female, old, and young. We can see the synergistic exponential release of the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? Psalm 133, which says, How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what unity is like the anointing oil flowing from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. And the Bible says, But there, everybody say there. there. The Lord commanded the blessing. God's looking for a place called there. Come on. It's the place where we come together. Drop our agendas and come together and believe. Right? And you can almost command this blessing. It's like with my kids, I have two uh, toddlers, one six, one four. And uh, the, the names are Benjamin and Samuel. But uh, listen, <laughs> uh, when they're not playing in unity and agreement, then what's the first thing I do? Parents are toddlers. I what? Separate. Right? I think their names are, they, they probably think their names are Op and Stop. Stop, 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 stop. Go over there. Stop. You stay over there. <laughs> you say that so much. But then when they're playing in unity, playing in agreement, oh, it melts your heart, doesn't it? You want to get right in the middle of whatever they're doing. Make her roll around the floor with them. You're chasing around the house. They ask you to go get ice cream for them. Give them a sugar fix and leave them with their mother for the next four hours while you go to something else. <laughs> Secrets out that happens. My wife might be watching my <laughs> They can almost command it from you, right? Father God is much the same way. Come on. When he sees us all in unity, all in agreement, working together primarily in that place of prayer, the command and blessing comes. Why do I say that? Because everyone was a high priest. But then does say something that was so profound that's changed my life, changed the way I pray, changed the way I do ministry. He said this, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. Wow. Come on. Yeah. He said that his alma mater, Christ for the Nations, lead the student body in prayer for revival. While he was praying, he heard the Holy Spirit speaking to him while he was praying. And the Lord said to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the father of the school. Because I still want to answer his prayers for, for other things that need to be released in the school right now for revival. To impact the school. And he thought, okay, Holy Spirit, is this really you? Because that man's dead. <laughs> He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not talking to the dead. And the Lord said, I didn't say agree with him. I said agree with his prayers. They're still alive before my throne. Yeah. There are things I promise this man in prayer that I want to release in school right now because I need this generation to come and agree with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. So God will start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations to come. Then Hebrews 11, 39 and 40 finally made sense to him. He says, all these by faith. They were approved for their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised. They got part of it, and they get all of it. Why? So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect right. without us. So think about it. There's this whole company of people looking over the balcony and saying, hey, y'all. Hey, 
Don't miss this thing up because God started something in us and he wants to complete exponentially for you. Jesus said that that's what he said. What greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. Which helped understand Psalm 133 a whole lot better when I understood the garments of the priesthood. Because listen, Aaron, the high priest, when he was anointed, that oil it was poured all over his head. And we don't understand it because when we anoint somebody today, we put a little oil on our finger and we thump them on the forehead and we call it a day. That's not quite how they did it back then. Scholars like Jack Hayden and Tim Sheets told it. Listen, they would they would take up the gallon of oil and pour it all over that high priest's head when they would anoint him for the priesthood. As that oil dripped down, it dripped from their head onto their beard and onto that robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest with the oil from the past. Wow! But then, as he was anointed for his today. In, in the relevancy and the impact for today, as that oil dripped down from today, it mingled with the anointing from the past. And that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum building anointing that goes from generation to generation to generation, the saturation of the ages, if you will. Everybody's looking for the next original something in the body of Christ. They're looking for the next purpose driven, this or that. They're looking for the next. Uh, uh, a woman there, I lose something or whatever. Those are great titles. Those are great authors. I'm not disputing that. What I'm, my point is this: God's not after originality right now. He's after a successor. Wow. And to a successor, He released a double portion of anointing on them that are so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but also make them a springboard for future generations. Come on, yeah, yeah. Good. I heard that said that. I remember that part. We traveled with it since 2001 all around America. I brought it here before. Short notice, I didn't get a chance to bring it this time, but that's it. Like I said, it's used for cooking. It was used for washing clothes, but secretly it was used for prayer. Mm-hmm. Forefathers were slaves in Lake Province, Louisiana, and they were owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason. And praying was one of them. Irony of the peculiar institution, they call it the peculiar institution for a reason, slavery, was that they wanted their slaves to be Christians because they knew the Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, so the number of votes, right? But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law. Uh, for slaves to read and write, there's also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. Right? But while they wanted them to be Christians, they didn't want them to pray because if they prayed, it would foster hope. They got hopeful. They would try to run away. Yes, they were also afraid of uh, insurrections, but the story that was passed out in our family that he didn't want hope to come to them because of the time. So he would literally beat them if he heard them praying. Give an example how cruel the slave master was. We had a story passed down in our family about a uh, a great uncle that was a slave in his plantation named Uncle Willie. And he went fishing without asking. And so the slave master decided to make an example out of him when he came back. So they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They then took the leather strap, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat of nine tails. Matter of fact, the slaves would call it just that. And they beat the slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. Uh, as the story is told, they took a huge sheet, put lard or grease on that sheet, and wrapped it around his body to stop the flow of the blood. Uh, they put grease on the sheet so that the, the cotton the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. But in spite of their efforts and because of the cruelty, he bled to death and died. So that's how slavery, cruel slavery was in Louisiana at that time. It was a horrible uh, place to be a slave. Twelve years of slave, that movement was made about slavery in Louisiana. <clears throat> That's how cruel slavery was in their plantation. And if these slaves in my family were called praying, they would be beat as well. But listen, these folks were Christians. And they decided to pray anyway. <laughs> Come on. What they would do is they would sneak into a barn late at night to make sure that prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure that it wasn't heard in the middle of the night, they used this pot. Here's what they would do. They would take this pot and turn it upside down and then prop it up with rocks of it so it be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then lay flat on the ground and prostrate themselves on the ground. 
So the lips would be in between the opening between the ground and the kettle. And they used the kettle to muffle their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. One day freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl decides to keep that pot and that story in our family. Now why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone. Right? Who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. But she's also thinking about the next generation too. And she wants them to remember. So she passes that pot and that story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett then passed the pot and the story down to her daughter, Nora Lockett. Nora Lockett then passed it on to her son, William Ford Sr., and then passed it on to his son, William Ford Jr., and then gave it to me, William Ford III. So there at this conference, hearing about agreeing with the prayers of those who have gone before us, I'm thinking about the heart that God had given me for revival and for this nation. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And I remember the kettle. And I start thinking about Revelation 5 and 8. They use that pot as an acoustic means to keep their prayers from being heard. Literally, Revelation 5 and 8 says there's a bowl in heaven that catches your prayers every time you pray. There's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over your neighborhood. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. I'm thinking, oh my God, to whom much is given, much is required. But then I thought about the privilege of that. I thought, oh my God, I get to agree. I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. Shared this with Dutch, and he said, you know, William, I was praying about, God, do you really want us to take some pot around the country and represent the prayer bowls of heaven? He said, I was with Lou Engle, my Bible falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20. And part B of that verse says, And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord <laughs> should be like the bowls before the altar. <laughs> so here's this cooking pot that's called for prayers. It was a bowl in there when it catches our prayers like Jesus. And that said this to me. He said, Wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony to use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? Yeah. I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were white Christian abolitionists. Come on. Yeah. Any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. And they let their lives down for each other. Many of them had their houses burned, they were shot, they were killed, they were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise the weakest slavery. Come on, right? Come on, right? One of them was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy, a town in Alton, Illinois, when a slave was beat to death and nobody else cared about it. This white Christian became an abolitionist took a strong stand against slavery in his area. Started, he bought the first, one of the first printing prints that were made and started sending abolition material out throughout the area. Many people began to shift from slavery to abolition to fight for freedom, except for the, this angry mob of slave owners who hated what he was saying, hated the transition, hated the transformation that he was carrying, and they came to his house destroyed his printing press, then went to the post office and destroyed the next printing press that was about to deliver to him. He threatened his life over and over again. So he goes before his city council and he says, listen, it's the duty of the government to protect its citizens. I need you to protect me. And the mayor and the city council said to him, listen, sir, if you just stop printing what you're printing and preaching what you're preaching, that will be your protection. Elijah P. Lovejoy begins to weep in front of him. He says, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. I cannot stop doing what I'm doing because if I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man. I fear God. And if I fall, my grave should be made here and not to the Lord. In the quote, his words proved to be prophetic. The next day, an angry mob came out, burned his house down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, he was shot and killed. God has not forgotten about that man. You know, and he hasn't forgotten about any of our forefathers. Those memorial stones, you know what they were? Those 12 stones, they represented 
Not just the 12 tribes of Israel. There is there isn't the 12 great-great-grandsons of God's covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow. So when God saw those stones, he didn't set a pile of rocks. He saw the great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow. When he sees Philadelphia, he didn't just see uh, you know, the geograph geographical location. He remembers his covenant friend William Penn and all the battles that were fought in this area. In other words, they're memorial stones. They're people whose lives become a living memorial before God. And you know what we get to do with those memorials? We get to build new altars for the next generation of the members of the faith and so forth. Listen. So, First uh, 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 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. The nation has gone astray, and mixtures come in. And what, is, what does Elijah do to rebuild the altars of revival? He gathers 12 stones. And he takes these huge stones from Joshua 4 and piles them together. And he basically says this, oh God, on these old stones, on these old memories, release a new fire for the next generation. Come on. And the nation turns around. Listen, that's what I'm doing today. I'm gathering old memories. I've got saying, God, pull out your scrapbook and remember what you started with the Quakers. Remember what you started with Jonathan Edwards. Remember what you started with William Seymour. Remember the prayers of all those who've gone before us once again. I'm saying, God, let old fire, the new fire fall on old stones for the next generation. See, it was God the remnant of the people of black Christian slaves and white abolitionists back then that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended. There's this little law back then called Dred Scott that said the slaves had no rights in the courtroom. And everybody thought that law sealed the fate of slavery in our nation. But because of revival, that law got broken in the hearts of everybody that's in this right, country. Right. And people in the North decided to fight for people in the South, especially those that didn't even look like them. Because of revival. That's why I'm saying the same God that broke the power of Dred Scott, listen, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. Come on, yeah. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline of prison. He can put, shut down the whole thing that's going on with mass incarceration. He can shut down the crack houses in the inner city and the, and the net houses and everything else and the opiate crisis that happened in the suburbs. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. said this to me. He said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves praying underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? I started studying it out and I realized that whole issue is connected so much to the race issue, bigger than we even realize. I have time to go into it, but they're all interwoven. They're all interconnected because when the person that you cannot see in the womb, the child of the womb becomes optional, it's inevitable that the people that you cannot see who are marginal will get eliminated. So Lord starts speaking to me about contending for a new revival that will include everybody this time. And so he did that to me in 2004. I had this powerful dream about the dream of Martin Luther King. In the dream, I was on, his, on, on my way to his old church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where we used to he used to preach. Started preaching. Civil rights movement got started from that church. In the dream, myself and my friend Louisville on, on that way to that church, but we couldn't remember how to get there. So in the dream, we had to go pick up Dr. King. So in the dream, we go by this house to pick up Dr. King. Of course, it's a dream, so he's alive. Right? He comes out of this house, with each hand, and he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently to come to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> it shows y'all carnal I am, right? Even in my dreams. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College. He went to Morehouse College. Hey, the bag will make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I get out of the vehicle to go pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders in the dream. He says, No! Do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. 
I wake up in a dream, tears streaming down my face. My pillow was soaked with tears. I've been weeping in intercession the whole night. I didn't even realize it. I shared it with my friend Louis Lou. He begins to weep. I'm like, God, what's the interpretation for the dream? The Lord reminded me. What did Dr. King say to me? The Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that will be the interpretation for your dream. And I realized, hug, the white bag with the black handles. The black handles represented how I, as a black man, have been handling my white baggage. Wow. Wow. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I knew what baggage the Lord was talking about because I knew what happened to me. This memory I was 13 years old and coming out of a convenience store. Three of my friends and Carlo Flo White guys decided to chase us for over an hour and a half, call us the N-word, and said they were going to shoot and kill us. They were just drawing, but we were terrified. Then at 19 years old, I was in a grocery store and a plainclothes cop following me the whole time. And at the end, he tried to falsely accuse me of shoplifting. We couldn't find anything on me. He said ugly and nasty things to me to provoke me into a fight. You know, it's like in my 30s that had my first house, nice neighborhood, and had for the first three months I was there, the same cop every week stopped me. Once a week, just for driving while black. I know what that feels like. But you know what I've done? For every white person and for every police officer in that in the area, I put those three encounters on every single person before I even had a conversation with them. This is the diabolical plot of the devil. It's Revelation 12 where it says the, the devil is what? The accuser of the brethren. The word accuser is the word categorous. It's where we get the word category. The diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other. And before we ever get to have a conversation with anybody, the first thing we do is we take one bad experience with somebody else that looks like them and put it on them. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your guilt manipulation. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So the question for all of us today is this. What color is your baggage? Get rid of it because we need each other. Because listen, only a united church can heal a divided nation. So we go to speak at that church. Next to Avenue Baptist Church. They have this huge 600 page book called Testament of Hope. Afterwards, and it falls open to the I Have a Dream speech from Dr. King. I take it to the pulpit where Dr. King used to speak and I begin this you know, give this, I have a dream speech, I just start saying it like a prayer. And I get to this part where Dr. King says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves, the sons of former slave owners will begin with, will sit together at the table of brotherhood. And I'm like, oh my God. And for the first time, I, I started praying for the people who used to own our family. Wow. Oh. Wow. But little did I know that Mr. Plain would have unfinished business they would connect with you. So, the next year, Louis England says, hey, I want to have you come and share this dream and bring your kettle, share your message. Be one of the King celebration day, January 17th, 2005. Here's the, 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 the actual gathering itself. I got it. Uh, okay. This is the actual gathering right here. <laughs> January 17, 2005. Now, the person who took this picture was a guy named Matt. Matt, his father had just died the previous year, January 17, 2004. He just happened to, to, to come to this event because he had a dream. He had a dream about the guy over the event, Lou Engel. He's working, minding his own business in corporate America, on the fast track. Making six figures a year as a young guy. His father died suddenly, January 17, 2004. He says, God, help me find my family history. So I'm running off to all these roadblocks. And then he has a dream. There's a dream while he's praying for help, God to help him find out where his family history comes from. And in the dream, he's praying for revival and the ending of abortion with a man named Lou Engel. He wakes up in the dream and he goes, Who and what is a Lou Engel? Why was he praying so intensely? So he goes to this newly invented thing called Google at the time. And he types in the name Lou Engel. 
And up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream. And he's praying for revival and the ending of abortion, and he freaks out. So he comes to this gallery. He, he took this picture. You see my, you follow the man with the blue sleeve there. You follow the hand all the way out. That's, that's my face there. That's Lou Engle there. We're there in this prayer gathering together. This is the picture the neck took that day. Interesting thing happens though. Matt leaves everything. He, we become good friends, and we've been friends now for uh, for fifteen years. But then the interesting thing happens. Uh, four years ago, Matt made an interesting discovery. He and Lou Engle go to pray at Appomattox Courthouse. While uh, they're praying at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, this is the Appomattox Courthouse is the place where. South surrendered to the North Civil War. Yeah. So they were praying for all the division in the nation at that time. But they go into this bookstore and Lou grabs the first random book off the bookshelf and it happens to be this book. Turn to the next slide for me. And uh, it's this book called The Battle of Lockett's Farm. <laughs> and that freaks out because that's, you know, here's his name being called and he's like, The Battle of Lockett's Farm and Lou's like, hey, have you ever heard of this? Turns out there was this farmhouse called Lockett's Farmhouse. That's the place where the last battle of the Civil War happened. He thought, man, what a cool coincidence, you know? So then he got a phone call from his brother. He said, hey, man, I just finally, I finally got breakthrough on our family history. It turns out that we were like the last land barons in Virginia. We had really good connections with King George. We thousands of acres, lots of property. And man says, man, do I have a Virginia story for about some lockets? And he starts telling the story about this uh, battle at Sailor's Creek and uh, there in Lockett's Farm. And his brother says, is that the place by Sailor's Creek? He said, yeah. He's, his brother says, I just got the documentation on that two weeks ago. That was our family. Wow. So think about it. <laughs> Matt finds out, basically, that the Civil War ends in his family's front yard. All right, so here's the next slide. This is the actual place. This, the house is still standing there, right? And that's the memorial stone in front of a Sailor's Creek. Uh, uh, the Daughters of the Revolution put this memorial stone up there. It says, here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865. Interesting thing, they say that the, uh, the Northern Army was in the front, the Southern Army was in the back. In other words, the, the only thing that stood between both armies was this house. It actually looks like Swiss cheese when you walk up close to it. I think that's a prophetic sign for what the church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to be that house of prayer that is contending and standing for unity and standing between the brothers who are trying to tear each other apart. Whether it's on Facebook or in the streets or in culture, this is where we're called to be. It's, it's said that after the Civil War was over, the house got turned into a hospital for both sides. And former slaves worked with white nurses and they mended the wounds of the brothers who were fighting against each other. That's what we're called to do. We're called to stand in the gap. Yeah, we may take some shots as a house, but it's worth it to stand in the gap with Jesus to see the healing of the nation right now over this issue. If you go to the next slide for me, so uh, that's Matt's family there. You can see this kids, wife, Kim, other children. Next slide. And this is what God shows them, the bullet holes in the house. Next slide. So, uh, next slide for me. So, man goes inside, and the man shows him the same genealogical family line and shows Matt in the family line. It's the same uh, research that his brother had. They fit hand in glove. This is his family. And then the man begins to tell him, says, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, y'all didn't just stay here in Virginia. Some of y'all went to Kentucky, which is where Matt is from, Great, got that far. He says, Some of y'all uh, also went to the deep south, and some of y'all went to Louisiana. Oh, yeah, and sometimes if y'all try to go across the country, you drop the T off the end of your name, and they were cut because there were clerical errors. And you begin to think, Hold up, Louisiana? Willis folks were from Louisiana. And that's the last name is Lockett, Matt Lockett. The slaves in my family first were Lockett's. My grandfather was first born. Lawrence Lockett, but they didn't want him to have a slave name, so they changed his name to William Lawrence Ford after a friend of theirs who was free. 
And so he flew from D.C. to Dallas and laid out all this research. And we just talked and prayed and cried and said, what if? I'm a researcher. He's a researcher. I don't, flag, I don't like flaky stuff. Neither does he. So my oldest known family member was a man named Isaac Lockett. If you go to the next slide. He shows up in the 1870 census. You can't see it well there, but the man highlighted there is named Isaac Lockett. He shows up in the 1870 census. He's living in Lake Providence, Louisiana. He's 90 years old in this census, so 1870 is five years after slavery. This is probably where this man was a slave on his plantation. He's there, but in that document, they asked place of birth, he said he was originally from Virginia. We spent another year in research, and here's what we found out from empirical evidence. Matt's family is the family that owned my family where the Kellepot came from. So think about it. Here's my family in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the family that you're born into and the place where you live, maybe none of it's a mistake. Maybe there's a redemptive purpose and plan God has. All this stuff. They're there praying for the ending of slavery. And all the way up at the farmhouse of the people who used to own them and gave them their name, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, he says, I'm going to take two people from those same families, Matt and I, and weave their lives together so they can war against injustice in their day and cry for awakening in their day. Come on! Next slide for me. So, we got asked by the town of Lake Province to, to come and share our story. We actually found the plot of land where uh, Isaac Lockett was a slave, and that's the plot of land where that plantation used to be. So think about it. There was a prayer meeting on that plot of land <laughs> in the middle of the night where some folks snuck in to pray for my freedom and for your freedom. Too. You know, the thing I love about those abolitionists, they help me understand something. They, they were willing to fight for people who didn't look like them to be free because they knew that person was their brother. Yeah. The history of that, that kettle is not just mine, it's yours too. If my ancestors have been Muslims or Buddhists, I have no connection to their popular history because I'm a Christian. But because they were Christians, listen, not only those, my ancestors and the forefathers are yours too. Yeah. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Jonathan Elwich. And Charles Phoenix, as you are William Seymour and Martin Luther King, Amen. and when we come together, that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, this is something powerful happen. The oil begins to flow, anointings begin to mingle, yokes begin to break. Come on, next slide for me. So uh, that was the first time we shared our story together. Next slide. We've been sharing together all around the country, and uh, here's where uh, the town of Lake Providence actually gave us the keys to the city. Listen, God is releasing keys of providence to open doors, no man can close, close doors, no man can open. Next slide. So here's another interesting thing about the story. So in Matt's family, he also had these people. Here's Napoleon and Mary Lockett, and Napoleon, he was very, very wealthy. Uh, he was a colonel for the Confederacy, and he, he owned lots and lots of slaves. And when he and his 11 children, they had about 1,000 slaves they owned. Right? And so his wife was like the Southern Belle aristocrat, like the Gone with the Wind kind of aristocratic folks in the South back then. And Mary Lockett didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a man to design the very first Confederate flag. And she hand sewed that flag in her house. With her friends. In other words, Mary Lockett was the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. And uh, next slide, this is the, the first flag that she put together. It's called the Stars of the Bar. She came with the idea for them to even have the flag. They thought this is great, but it looks too much like the other flag on the battlefield, so then they came up with this flag. But think about it, because of the prayers of black Christian slaves in that family and white Christian abolitionists in this family, and I'll tell the story in a second. And all around the country, listen, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our country, listen, next slide. The flag of surrender went up in their front yard. Come on. Next slide. So uh, that's, that's the house there. So uh, if you go to the next slide for me. Um, yeah, so interesting thing. Um, well, go, go back. Go backwards more. I'm sorry. 
So we found out something else that was really, really powerful. <laughs> um, we found out that Matt also had his family. He just randomly reading a book about Methodist and revival, and he comes across a name, Daniel Lockett. And he's, oh my God, is this person connected to me? And sure enough, he looked, put all his genealogy research. This was his family member, Daniel Lockett. He traveled as a, a circuit rider with Francis Asbury. Oh. Uh, who are the circuit riders? The circuit riders were these guys that traveled to Asbury. They were amazing revivalists, but they were also abolitionists. You couldn't own slaves and be a circuit rider at that time period. Right? And they carried two things in their satchels as they went across the country. They carried a Bible and a manumission book. We know what the Bible was for, but you know what the manumission book was, was for? It was so that when they preached the gospel, if someone was a slave owner got saved, they would say, you know, it was for freedom that Christ set us all free. And they would slide the main mission book over to them so they could sign it to set their slaves free. Later. Wow. It said that everywhere that the circuit riders went, the free slave population grew exponentially. So yeah, Matt had slave owners in his family, but you go back a little bit further. He also had abolitionists in his family, too. And all of our families, this, we have this thing called generational curses and generational blessings. They represent these dominating themes. They represent storylines. Right? I have family members who have done things I'm not proud of, we're not proud of. I've done stupid stuff. But then I have those folks back there continuing for revival and ending of slavery. So we always have these dominating things called story, called uh, generational blessings and curses. that God is saying to America right now is this. What are we going to connect to? The blessing or the curse? In other words, what storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? Next slide for me real quick. So, uh, so this gentleman right here, interesting story about him. He, when he was in his autobiography, he tells a story of how he and his mother, his mother was trying to teach him how to read, but then... Uh, uh, they just come out of slavery and still like really frowned upon for, for black people to learn how to read because they were afraid of insurrections. So his mother was trying to teach him how to read, and this, this white woman walked in on him trying to learn how to read. They thought, okay, this is this is gonna be ugly. She said, No, 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 what y'all doing here is good and right. I'm gonna take over your tutelage and I'm gonna teach you how to read and write. The woman who found them was a lady named uh, Lucy Lockett. Lucy Lockett was one of Matt's great, 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 great grandmothers. It was on the right side of history. Right. And she taught them how to read and write. That little boy grew up to be a man named uh, Robert Moton. Robert Moton became the second president of Tuskegee University. Wow. After Booker T. Washington uh, left, he turned it over to Robert Moton. Robert Moton became an education advisor to four presidents. And when the Lincoln Memorial was built, when it was finished, they got Robert Moton to do the dedication speech. And then 41 years later, after Robert Moton does that dedication speech, 41 years later, Martin Luther King would do the I Have a Dream speech. And then 41 years later, Matt and I would meet there at a prayer meeting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Coming to back to the place where Dr. King said in the I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that one day, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. Maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Come on. Yes. Maybe there's a dream king called the king of kings. His father is still answering his prayer. Come on. Father, I pray to you once so that your glory can come so that the world would believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of William Penn. Maybe I forgot about the prayers of all those who have gone before us. <laughs> Stay tuned. There's so much for we, We've written a book about it. It's there in the back. It's called The Dream King. But I've shared it like the tip of the iceberg was in the book. But beyond that, I just want to stop right now. I just feel like we need to pray and take this into a little bit of a time of intercession. It's time to contend once again for your spiritual inheritance. There's a spiritual inheritance in your family. Because listen, I don't care how you were born, how you came into being, God willed you into existence. No one here is a mistake. All this is happening to a guy who thought he was one big mistake growing up. I was born 12 years after my oldest brother. 11 years after my, 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 my older sisters. They're all four, they're twins. And after the twins, uh, were born, the doctor told her, 
It's not wise for you to have any more children. My mother had a tubes tied. And for, yeah, and 11 and a half years later, she got pregnant. But she, but she's six months pregnant. She didn't. She thought that I was a tumor, so she was afraid to go to the doctor. So for six months, she didn't know. That tumor kept kept growing and growing. And then when she finally went to the doctor, she found out she was pregnant with little old me. And I thought I was one big mistake for most of my life. And then she had another child after that on August the eighth. New beginnings, right? My yeah. sister was born two years after me. My point is this, no one is a mistake. Amen. We're all made in the image. Amen. God values all of it. So the deal is this, there's still table, there's a room at the table of brotherhood. So Father, we just come before you right now. I pray over people here. I want to pray for, for people, you know, I talked about my Uncle Willie who willingly gave his back to be beaten. <laughs> Think about it. Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, listen, he's healing history. And by his blood, he has united us to his unfinished business. Come on. And listen, you can be the one that can be the blessing to stop the curses from flowing in your family and turn everything. You could be the one that turns everything. So Father, I pray, God, just open hearts right now. I pray for purpose to be released. I pray for your unfinished business from family members and our families. I pray for the redemptive purpose for which we were born into the families that we were born into. I pray for those things that come alive right now in the name of Jesus. God of promise. You make no mistakes. Nothing just happens. You haven't given up on any of any person in this room. You haven't given up on any of our offspring. You haven't given up on Philadelphia, no matter what it looks like. You haven't given up on this nation. You haven't forgotten about the prayers of our grandmothers. You haven't forgotten about the prayers of our grandfathers. There's a prayer bowl over every family. God, we ask you once again. Remember the prayers of the lockers and their long searchings. How they searched for the dwelling place of the living God. They ain't no sleep to their eyes and their head no rest, so they found a resting place for you. Oh God, remember the prayers of Wigan Penn and his long searchings. Yes, God. I searched for the dwelling place of the living God. Came to this place and named it Pennsylvania. Made a covenant with the First Nations people here. And said, as long as the creeks run. And all the, and as the sun and the moon, the stars endure. So this covenant of peace shall land. Now we pray, release that covenant of peace. Let it be reactivated once again. Out of the place of brotherly love, that we contend for the Prince of Peace to rule and reign over our nation once again. That we agree with all the covenant promises that we're praying and, and laying hold of in this place, God. I have faith for this nation. People say, oh, it's not a Christian nation. But I remember the prayers of those who got before us. I remember the prayers, Lord, of that, that, that priest that rode with them in Jamestown. Robert Hunt, yeah. who made a covenant with you at the three days of fasting and erected a cross on the banks of the drain. James River said, God, use this land, use the people of this nation to evangelize all the nations of the earth, to make your son's name famous once again. I'm asking you to answer your son's prayers, God.
as the seed die and go into the ground. God, I'm asking for, Lord, many sickles and harvests to be raised up in the name of Jesus. Oh God, remember the prayer of your son. I'm just bringing memorial stones before you. I'm trying to build a new altar before you. I'm saying, God, don't you remember Jesus? Don't you remember? Father, remember the prayers of your son. Make us an answer to your son's prayer in John 17. In this hour, God. So the generations even yet to be created can praise you. Jesus, name. Amen. 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 Sometimes we forget in the 21st century the things that have happened in the past. Another thing we have a tendency to forget is Philadelphia is the most southern, northern city, right? That's why there's such a rich history here, because you go just a couple miles south here, and you're we're now on Mason-Dixon line, right? So out of the out of the large cities, it's the most southern northern, right? It's the, it's the largest one of the southern most of the of the Union at the time. And so there's so much that is happening in the spirit and physical in this town. And so I just want you to be reminded and be blessed that you have a purpose, and that you're born for such a time as this, as it was just quorum last week. Don't take your life. Don't take your family heritage. Yes. Don't take the fact that you're born in this time for granted. Right. As has been said, you know, how awesome would it be to live in biblical times? I mean, we are living in biblical times. Yeah. Not only are we living in biblical times, but people in the Bible prophesied and says in Hebrews, like they saw in part wishing and wishing that they could see what we have seen and be alive for what we are alive for. So be encouraged. You have a, a purpose. There's a plan for your life. Whatever, whatever dirt you went through, man, the Lord loves saving it for, for beauty and for the power of testimony. Amen? Come on, man. So that was a little longer than uh, what we usually do. Or actually, not really. It's usually when we uh, uh, end up. Um, but we just want to bless our, our team here. I know uh, people are doing a bunch of different things, but there's some refreshments downstairs. Um, if you want to uh, join us for some coffee and pastries and things like that, I'll be down there. We always want to invite you uh, to come back sometime next week. Um, if you like, we're here Wednesdays just praying for revival in the, in the community and in the area. And of course, we'll be here next week at 10 o'clock. Um, but at this point, uh, we will officially dismiss service. Uh, but what I would like to do here is if there's people who need... Would like some prayer. We have some of our prayer guys going down.